0: Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you are listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising healthy, happy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information, tools, and strategies. So let's fill that well. So today we are talking with Dr. Ilona Jaspers about vaping and e-cigarettes. Dr. Jaspers has more than 15 years of experience as a professor of pediatrics, microbiology, and immunology and environmental sciences and engineering at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She specializes in the effects of ambient air pollutants on respiratory immune dysfunction. As the Deputy Director of the Center for Environmental Medicine, Asthma, and Lung Biology, Dr. Jaspers collaborates extensively with investigators from UNC and the US Environmental Protection Agency to conduct translational studies related to air pollution health effects. Today, she's gonna share what the science tells us about vaping, what we know about the more than 450 cases of vaping-induced lung injury, And how we as parents and professionals who work with youth can support them in quitting or not starting to begin with. So thank you so very much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. So to start, can you just share a little bit about what vaping is and why this has become such a popular thing among young people?
1: So um vaping is is pretty much the the process of aerosolizing or basically using um e-liquids that, that most of them contain Uh, some form of nicotine flavoring agents, but because they're not really tightly regulated, what actually is in these e-liquids is everyone's guess. And basically through a process of heating, you're generating an aerosol, um, which is basically a mixture of uh, small droplets and gas phase um, components, and that is being inhaled. Um, One of the reasons why I think it has become so popular among young people is um there are so many flavors available and the names of the flavors are kind of cute um and the it's it's the creativity there and last but not least the devices are kind of techie. they're kind of very um what should i say that they're they're very attractive to youth i mean probably many of us now have seen jewel it looks like a a snazzy flash drive, but that's mm-hmm. not the only one. There's there's many sort of devices that probably are very attractive to to young um, young people.
0: Yeah, I've I've seen some of the other um, types of devices, like even sweatshirts with drawstrings and things yep. like that. Yep, yeah. there's a whole
1: industry called vape wear now, where you basically you you exactly that where. The e-liquid or the e-cigarette is incorporated into the hood of a garment or there is now one, I don't know whether you've seen that one, That basically it looks like an Apple watch uh, where the vaporizing device is basically the face of the watch and it just sort of pops yeah. out and there's one that looks like a Fitbit. So creativity goes wild, yeah. uh, creative greed is unlimited and um, it's kind of interesting to see what people come
0: up with yeah you know and and what we're talking about here is a generation of young people who are have grown up with technology they're used Mm -hmm. to these kinds of devices yes but but even some of the less sophisticated marketing in the beginning of vaping and e-cigarettes was targeted to young people wasn't it
1: yes it, it very much so was if you think about the flavorings that were heavily marketed, such as bubblegum or pina colada or strawberry shortcake. I mean, you wouldn't really necessarily associate a 65 year old uh, patient suffering from COPD going after those kinds of flavors. So those flavors were clearly marketed for Um, a younger audience. Um, The other thing too is if you go back to some of the original advertising that was done either in magazines or even on uh, cable TV, it was really basically using a page out of the tobacco industry playbook uh, using the same kind of lines where you know things are cool you know you things are sexy things are very attractive you know young people having fun is the same kind of thing that was used by the tobacco industry a few decades ago
0: mm-hmm. yeah it seems to be um, and you mentioned a little bit about what is in mm-hmm. the actual content um, besides nicotine, but what other things could you share with people about the hazardous effects of the contents of, of vaping material?
1: So so there's, there's two things I think that people need to um, pay attention to. So there's the nicotine component, which creates the addictive potential in these e-cigarettes. And one thing that I, th- I think needs to be made clear and pointed out, Juul is is kind of amazing in a way that it, it uses 5% nicotine. That's really, really high. And there's now some of these knockoff products uh, that are sort of these pod-based uh, devices that go up to 8% nicotine. Um, that may not mean a lot to people who don't know what a proper base for comparison is, but a common cigarette has about 1.5, 1.8 weight by volume percent, mm. in. and actually in the European Union, no product is allowed that has more than 2% uh, nicotine, so that just sort of shows you how high the nicotine content is in Juul, but that's that's the addictive chemical in these e-liquids. With regards to what else is in there? Um, so they're all most of these products contain what we consider a base compound which is the liquid so those are obviously um, those are often propylene glycol and, or glycerols those are the base compounds that are basically used as a vehicle for the aerosolization of the e-liquid, so those are the base compounds, and then you have nicotine, and then that's where the sort of commonalities oh. usually stop. So you have lots of different flavors. I've now seen things with, you know, vitamin B added, or melatonin, or picker uppers like caffeine. So they're marketed that way as well because mm-hmm. there's no regulations as to what you can and cannot put in there. You can add additional things that you know could be marketed in a particular way.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah and and it's interesting, you mentioned the comment about cigarettes actually being lower in nicotine because I know I've heard, and many have heard that it's sold and kind of marketed as a way to as a healthy alternative to smoking
1: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, i don't I, I think the 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 current news, and there was the seventh death was reported today. Um, I'm not sure that um, statement holds true anymore, that it is a safer alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it was marketed in the beginning, and I think the basis for that was just wrong. If you, if you really look at what the basis for that comparison was, they basically started with cigarettes, the components or the chemicals in cigarettes and what cigarettes do, and then compared those effects or those levels to what is contained in e-cigarettes. And yes, e-cigarettes have less of some of those 70 cancer-causing agents that are contained in cigarettes. I'm not denying that. But at the same time, e-cigarettes have things that cigarettes do not have. Um, and so, you know, that was not the basis for comparison. The other comparison was made on we know what cigarettes do, where they cause chronic bronchitis, they cause COPD, they cause cancer. So, those were the endpoints of the clinical manifestations that we based our comparison for. But these, these clinical manifestations don't occur until many, many years after you have smoked your first cigarette. And what we're seeing now. With this rise in, in this outbreak and these vaping-associated lung injuries, this this occurred much quicker, uh, much faster. So um, it's it's definitely a wrong basis for comparison.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I heard a statement in, when you spoke with um, NPR in Wisconsin. You know, it's like comparing apples to oranges. Yep. <laughs> because yeah. we're looking at completely different chemicals and yep. and in the products themselves. Um, so with that, is there, um, is there something for people to know or understand as it relates to vaping a plant-based product um, versus vaping oils?
1: So that's an interesting question. When, you, when you're talking about vaping a plant, pra, plant-based product, are you referring to vaporizing the actual plant or botanical?
0: That or even THC. In right. some format.
1: So, so that's the difference. So THC can be contained in, again, in a sort of vehicle, in a liquid vehicle, such as propylene glycol or vegetable glycerin, um, or it can, you know, there are, there are other formulations of THCs, which are oils, but they're usually not made for inhalation. Um, inhalation of an oil is never a good idea. Uh, because the lung is just not made to absorb oils. Um, And some people may have already heard about this, this manifestation of what's called lipoid pneumonia, where cells in your lungs just fill up with fats and lipids and are not able to do what they're supposed to be doing. So vaping oils is never, never, ever a good idea. Uh, no, no matter whether it is, you know, a botanical, whether it is nicotine, whether it was whatever, vaping oils mm-hmm. is bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you mentioned the, the the seven deaths that have now been reported. And I know I've seen statistics that say up to 450 people who have cases of this vaping-related lung injury. Um What do you think is going on here in terms of of that? Do you think it's more related to uh, THC or? Yeah,
1: that's that's an interesting question. I think the CDC actually just modified that number. They reduced it to about 380, but that's really more, uh, those are that's absolutely confirmed or highly likely versus the ones that are suspected. So it's just a just sort of changed the number a little bit but that really doesn't make a difference in my view Mm -hmm. um what what is going on here that's a really interesting question that's what everyone is asking right now the cdc is working favorably and they're doing a really good job trying to understand what is in these e-liquids or what component is common to many of, many or all of those vaping associated lung injury cases. Um, and I think that's, that's gonna be difficult to do, but it, I'm, I'm suspecting, I don't have any hard uh, proof to, to support the statement, but just based on my intuition, I would say it's not going to be one chemical, it's going to be mm. several chemicals, because also the vaping associated lung injury, the manifestation is somewhat different in different cases. So what is going on here? I think there are probably um, some contaminants or some chemicals that people are now inhaling that's causing this sort of chemical injury. And what do I mean by that? So this could be either contaminant in the THC uh, preparations that has been, certainly has been suspected in the cases in New York City uh, but one thing that we also need to keep in mind is that the, the, the sort of vaporization process applies heat. And whenever you have heat, you are causing a reaction or we term a thermal decomposition where you basically have chemicals that are now being transformed into a new chemical. So even though the CDC may be doing the analysis of the initial, you know, e-liquid, what was actually inhaled may have been a different chemical because of this heating process. So it's very, very complex. Um, And I hope that CDC sort of will shed some light on it very soon, but my suspicion is it's because it is so widespread all over the United States and even the Virgin Islands, um, I find it hard to believe it's going to be a single compound. I'm thinking it's going to be more of a general class uh, that may be causing um, some of these uh, these vaping-related lung injury cases.
0: Mm, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that when we look at that, there's many different... Um, there's Juul and there's other knockoff companies that you don't mm-hmm. know all of the products, all of the things that are inside of these products. You don't necessarily know how they're interacting together and how that's yeah. affecting individual people. Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I think one, you just pointed out a very important aspect that's not really considered either. We're sort of lumping all of these cases together as if the, we, these were like homogeneous populations and they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them may have had a mild underlying disease, such as asthma. Um, some may have maybe taking other medication and there's an interaction with another medication. So I think that's all of that will play in there. and It's going to be a lot more complex.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there any things that, that are common in terms of how people recognize that they need to go to the hospital or something mm-hmm. might be happening here?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. So I, from what I understand, it's sort of common symptoms associated with pneumonia. So you have fever, chills, potentially night sweats. Uh, one thing that's interesting is that with some cases there seem to be uh, weight loss through diarrhea and vomiting. Um, another thing that seems to be different to like normal like bacteria caused pneumonia is this increase in um, c- circulating liver enzymes, which is usually a sign of uh, stressed out liver or liver injury, um, and then obviously the the radiological findings, you know the opacities mm-hmm. on, on both lung, uh, lung sides and um, that sort of thing so that's basically what the initial pneumonia looks like
0: mm-hmm yeah I think that's a good thing. I, for you know our our organization serves parents and and predominantly works with parents and professionals who work with youth and families. So yeah. just to kind of know what what are they looking out for and how can they see the symptoms or the signs ahead of yeah. time.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It's sort of not funny, haha funny, but I sort of Mm. alerted one of my uh, very close friends, her kid, who goes to school with my daughter, uh, junior in a local high school here, just recently came down with vomiting and diarrhea and just couldn't shake it and still had, you know, had a little bit of fever and was coughing. I'm like, please. Did you ask him whether he's vaping? She's like, "Yes, I did." I said, "Please ask him again. Make sure." So I'm seeing, you know, right. I'm seeing everything now. But I think that people are alerted to this now, especially parents, when the kids are staying home and they're just not feeling good, and you're thinking it's just a common cold, or you know, things things are going around in the school. But asking the right questions is really important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's part of the whole parenting journey, isn't it? Kind of paying attention as much as you can to all the different things that could be going on and and circling the wagons around them when you can. Yep, absolutely. Um, So so one of the things that you mentioned earlier were regulations, because we have jewels and we have these knockoff products, and regulating that uh, is part of the problem in terms of there being all these things inside them that we don't know anything about. Um, and I know that a lot of cities around the country are are going through this process. Even here in Boulder County, we just, just recently, our city council has been meeting and have decided to go on with the ban on the sale of flavored e-cigarette products. Um, they're raising the minimum to 21, and in November, we'll be voting on whether or not to increase the sales tax uh, by 40%. Do you think that these kinds of regulations can have a positive impact on people not using or as a cessation tool i'm not sure that they're going to be a cessation tool but you know obviously limiting
1: or or um, reducing access can only help i'm um, i i do not know what your what boulder county is thinking about using the 40% sales tax on e-cigarette products uh, but one of the things that I think may be emerging from all of this is that you now have a new generation of nicotine addicted mm-hmm. teenagers and what do you do with them the most easy thing for them to do is switch to cigarettes because they're still going to be available even though you know the age for buying cigarettes or tobacco products is 21 but the reality is they can probably get those on um, so switching to cigarettes which is a bad bad thing so I'm hoping that we are focusing more now on creative ways to help these kids that are now nicotine addicted to get over their addiction um through you know all kinds of behavioral therapy and things like that uh, because you know, a lot of those nicotine replacement therapies that, you know, I could use, would I want to uh, quit smoking, like a nasal spray or drugs like Chantix or things like that are just simply not working or not even indicated in people under the age of 18. Um, so will these, will these regulations be a good cessation tool? They're, they're probably not gonna help, um, you know, kick the nicotine addiction but I think it's certainly a, a step in the right direction, and I'm hoping that some of the extra taxes that will be collected, like like in Boulder County, you now there's there's other proposals like that um, in other cities and counties, that that will be used to actually enhance uh, treatment for nicotine addiction in these teenagers.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, and actually, even going towards some of the prevention efforts, I know that some of the marijuana tax dollars have gone toward prevention programs yeah I
1: mean you're in Colorado you're ahead of the game so so you know how to do this
0: right hopefully so (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so the one thing that comes to my mind when I think about regular regulations always a little bit of a um, I think somewhat emotional conversation for people because we don't want to we don't want to say we accept or we condone this and um, regulating it puts tight things around it for people but then it also opens up this market of knockoff products that maybe cost less, and we've talked some about how yeah. that could be problematic. So, uh, how do you, you know? How do we find the balance between this kind of regulation and harm reduction around around um, other products that could not be regulated and still be very harmful?
1: Yeah. So, so that's a really interesting question because I think you're absolutely right. I think because Juul was so popular and access was limited and it was sort of you know, sort of expensive. It basically created a completely open window for these knockoff, these less expensive knockoffs, uh, which are even less regulated than a company like Juul and sort of pot- potentially contributing to the harm. Um, so I think we need to, if, 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 and I'm not gonna say that e-cigarettes are not a useful cessation tool. I think they may have a potential use, um, and I've always said this, um, for someone who's, let's say, a pack-a-day smoker who wants to quit the habit, sort of like as a harm reduction and a you know, lesser evil, I'm not going to say that that's not true. But if that's what we're trying to market it for, or that's, what the, or that's what the purpose is, we need to regulate it in such a way and we need to market it in such a way. And not create a basically free-for-all, anything-goes, Wild West, internet sales, where anybody can buy, basically buy anything. So I think if, if the balance will be, you know, there are some randomized clinical trials going on and coming out now showing potentially, you know, there's, the, the verdict is not out whether it is a good cessation tool or not, but let's say it is then it should be marketed and become available as such, and not just basically to anybody at any time, anywhere.
0: Right. You know, some of this reminds me of what we deal with when we're talking about anything that sort of becomes an epidemic. Like, I think about technology, um, and we were joking a little bit about, you know, social media and some of the ways in which that has so much power and influence. Um, One of the things that, that really helped families in particular was just having some ideas in terms of how do you put rules and Mm -hmm. structure around that like for example i know i've i'm hearing a lot of young people say that outside of it having more nicotine um, and being very easy to use and hide it's also something that they have like right next to them in their bed and Mm -hmm. and for a cigarette smoker you have to like go outside and have a cigarette right so I i think even just some tips on these are some things you don't want to do. You don't want to keep it right next to your bed, just like you don't want to keep your cell phone right next to your bed and check it constantly at two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) and I I think, no, no, you're absolutely right. And I think I I say that to my two teenagers as well. I said, you know, this generation is, is really smart and has an incredible potential because they have all of the news and all of the facts and all of the information at their fingertips at all times. Literally, because they have their phones with them all the time and they can fact check or find information at all times. And they're really, really savvy that way. So I think the way to really address this is educate them about this and tell them what this actually does and how they're how they basically are being used uh, by, you know, by by marketing and, uh, you know, economic greed. Um, as as a potential um, you know source for for buying these products, so I think we you know educating and 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 sort of appealing to the smarts of these teenagers, and I think they're you know we we shouldn't sell them short. I think they 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 will understand. And then the biggest thing that I'm appealing for is actually creating these um these peer ambassadors where it's not when i tell my kids and i'm sure you and your listeners have the same sort of impression when mom says something you know kids just roll their eyes and move on but if their friends tell them hey listen this is really gross i mean that's why kids don't smoke because everyone else around them thinks it's gross so if we now create or basically educate enough of these teenagers and create these peer ambassadors that are really propagating the message. I think that's how we can really address this pro- this issue.
0: Oh, that's so great that you said that. We have, and I actually interviewed for this program a young woman from an organization here in Boulder County called Youth for Youth. They're actually out of Broomfield, Colorado, and that's mm-hmm. exactly what their purpose is. Excellent. So they have a they have a social media account, um, mm-hmm. called Youth for Youth, on Instagram, and they send out messages and they speak at city council meetings and they share it with their friends so i think you're absolutely right that young people don't always want to hear this directly from their parents No, of course not.
1: And again, I'm hoping that, you know, using some of these these tax dollars that may be coming in now, actually supporting them and supporting some of their efforts um, and, and really making it bigger and making it more uh, widely accept, uh, uh, available. I think that's a great idea. I love these kinds of initiatives. You know, take the adults, the top-down approach out of it and, and make it sort of peer pressure and peer ambassadors, which is why smoking is probably so unpopular now,
0: because it's not accepted among peers anymore. Right. And what you said about kind of empowering young people and putting them in the place where they're hearing, look, you're being manipulated, you're being told things that aren't necessarily good. Um, You have the power and control to have an impact um, could be really helpful. I think we've seen that, at least in some ways, I know we've seen that with other drug and substance uh, misuse, mm-hmm. where, you know, they don't like to be told that they're being marketed to and manipulated. So I think that yeah. that's really valid, um, a valid thing. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that comes to my mind, because I also have, I have children, they're, they're young adults at this point, but um they're in the kind of 20 to 25 age range, but mm-hmm. that, that population is also using e-cigarettes quite a bit. Um, and so one of the concerns that I know I hear other parents say that I also have myself, is what are the impacts of secondhand smoke? Mm. Um,
1: yeah, so that is that is a lingering question. If you, if you, I mean, you've seen people vape and there's this big cloud you know coming out of their mouth and, and it would be hard to imagine that there is not secondhand, um, you know, uh, e aerosol exposure. I I have not seen much in the research that's done. There were a few reports. I know there is some going on, um, but especially in these sort of smaller rooms where kids now hang out and and you know they all vape. I would be even if you don't vape, you'll probably have some exposure to those um, to those aerosols. So. To in a, in a roundabout way, I, I think there there may be exposure there, but I have not seen any science actually addressing this uh, directly. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and it seems to me that this is another one of those things that we might not know the outcome of exactly. until many years later. Yes,
1: yeah. yes, and so the, the other thing too, which is Sort of like an interesting um, side effect to think about, um, and i 'm just going to tell you sort of like an anecdote from one of my um, other soccer parents' friends. Uh, the way she found out that her son was vaping was um, she basically cleaned the surface of her son 's you know um, room's furniture you know the the nightstand the the desk, and things like that, and she noticed in his room that was the only one that had this sort of gray film on top of everything. So if you think about e-cigarettes as this sort of aerosol, so you exhale it, but the droplets eventually go back to a surface. In this particular case, it would be, you know, let's say your nightstand. So do we also have other routes of exposures, uh, such an oral exposure or a dermal exposure, because we're now making other surfaces sort of like as sources of these e-cigarette aerosols. So for example, if you have it on your nightstand, you then put your hand on there, you put your hand in your mouth, you have an oral exposure. So that's another thing that I think might be interesting. Um, and certainly also then not necessarily for the person living in the room, but for others entering the room.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. It reminds me of, um, I used to, work for the sheriff's department and we would have to go in and clean out empty houses sometimes with people who were doing their, their jail time on the weekend. Then oftentimes when we would take things off, people would just leave their homes. We would take things off the walls and you could tell if there was a smoker because kind of you could see where the picture was on the wall. So I think it's interesting to hear that that's also, there's some potentially some kind of a film or some kind of thing that is leaving its mark from e-cigarettes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Now, we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, as I mentioned, our organization really works a lot with educating and empowering parents on how to deal Mm -hmm. with these kind of issues with their young people. And we serve people as early as K through 12 and all the way through 12th grade. Um, What other kind of advice would you have for parents in terms of preventing the use of e-cigarettes?
1: Um one of the things that um never ceases to amaze me is the disconnect in the language we use. You know, when kids when you ask a kid, do you do you smoke? They'll say no. And, and then they move on. Um and even healthcare providers, they often ask the question, Do you, you know, do you smoke or use tobacco products? And any kid who probably just jewels says, No, I don't. So Making for parents um, familiarizing them uh, themselves with a proper language and the proper lingo to use. Um, that was a big problem when Juul first came around. People asked, "Do you use e-cigarettes?" And any any teenager who used Juul said, "Now I don't use e-cigarettes. I Juul." So, so for parents, making sure that you ask the right questions using the right terms um and also going out and understanding what these devices are what do they look like hold a jewel in your hand you know go and see what these stigs are these sort of you know disposable e-cigarettes what do they look like what do they feel like um just sort of holding it in your hand and seeing what it is so you understand what the right follow-up questions may be
0: right right and like we talked about with sweatshirts and all the different ways i've seen i've seen um mint canisters that are actually um some kind of vaping tool so yeah lots of different ways that they come in so understanding the terms um, knowing what they look like Mm -hmm. um, maybe even understanding what it is that is attractive about this to them (laughs) the conversations i would say early and often conversations early and often because they change and what's happening around them changes and just staying in the conversation with them can be helpful
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so for my, when I talk to my kids about this and I, I sort of get, you know, it's my small little focus group that I have all the time (laughs) uh, where I ask them, it's like, what can I do uh, to help you guys understand that this is really, really bad? What, what, what is the message that gets to you? And the question, the answer my 16-year-old daughter gave me is like, mom, the reason why nobody smokes is because we've all seen that damn picture of that black lung. That is just horrifying. So she said, if you, you need to come up with pictures um, and illustrations that really scare the crap out of them. So it basically shows this is what this can do. Um, I think some of the pictures that are now on the news with these young adults on life support and on, on ventilators, um is 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 certainly something but showing pictures where um or 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 data or something that basically says this is what this does um this is a potential outcome you can have a collapsed lung because of this um or come down with pneumonia and potentially die um that's something that seems to be resonating certainly with some teenagers
0: yeah you know one of the things we focus on is taking a very um proactive and mm-hmm. strength based approach, and at the same time, as much as we know, even the data shows us that like things like just saying no to drugs didn't really work in terms of <laughs> interventions <laughs> um, right. but we do know that even though we don't want to just scare people, that having those kind of illustrations and images can have an impact. Mm-hmm. To it a bit of a balance i know i had a conversation with my daughter who's now 21 um and this was a few years ago but we were talking about actually meth methamphetamines and she and she said the same thing to me she said oh my gosh you know everyone i know says all they can think of are all all of those pictures and and advertisements they saw because a lot was put into showing people with scratched up faces and you know Mm -hmm. bad teeth and yeah kind of scared them. So yeah, as much as we want to have a, have a strength-based approach and not just scare people, talking about the truth and the reality is still an important piece of it.
1: Yeah. One, one um, picture that I often show in, in the presentations I give is a completely sort of random experiment we did in my lab where we were interested in one particular flavoring agent uh, called cinnamaldehyde. It's basically the chemical that gives cinnamon its wonderful flavor. I love cinnamon. Um, But it's obviously not meant to be inhaled. So cinnamon, cinnamaldehyde is a very, very aggressive chemical. Um, And when you buy cinnamaldehyde or cinnamon flavored e-liquids, you're actually told to transfer it into a glass vial and never leave it in plastic. And um, one of the things we did is we just basically took, you know, in, in my lab, we took a tissue culture plate and put the cinnamaldehyde on there at various concentrations with various different um, you know, e-liquids that are commercially available and just let it sit for about two hours and then washed it off and then took a picture afterwards. And what we found was that the cinnamaldehyde had actually corroded the plastic. It actually melted the plastic to the point where there was a sheet of plastic floating on top. Um, and so that's the picture that I showed my daughter. And she's like, oh my gosh, that is horrible. Because she actually right away made the connection. She's like, if this is what this flavoring agent does to plastic, what on earth does it do to my lungs? And so that was, a, that was a picture that sort of resonated with her.
0: Wow, that's a great example. Yeah, I mean, it seems that maybe that is another place that monies that come in through tax dollars could go towards some of these larger social norming marketing campaigns that really help bring these kind of messages to people. Yeah 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 i was involved in um in the when when um we were looking at passing smoke-free regulate regulations in different communities i was living in rural wisconsin i was in madison but i was working in rural wisconsin and we were doing a lot of um talking to people about what is it that makes the difference for you when we talk about not having you know not allowing smoking within an establishment and um and I remember one of the one of the advertisements that we used was a um a large picture of a swimming pool mm-hmm. um and it kind of had the message of there's um there's no no peeing zone in a swimming pool just like there's no no smoking zone in a restaurant. <laughs> it was just kind right. of funny to me because <laughs> People could relate to it, you know what I mean? Right. They, they, they've been in a swimming pool and they know that if someone goes to the bathroom in the swimming pool, it's gonna go yeah. throughout the entire pool. And so it just kind <laughs> of brings that kind of aggressive right. sample, but but it is something people remember. And I think looking at what these things are that are occurring and what we can communicate through some kind of creative marketing could be a very uh, beneficial way to get to people
1: yeah I, I agree, and I think you bring up a really, really good point. I think that's where my colleagues who are you know scientists like myself, have somewhat failed the public uh, where we're that's not really what we what we sort of used to, what we're trained to do. We're trained to generate data and hypotheses and test the hypotheses and then draw conclusions from our data. we're We're really not trained to provide a more abstract picture and levering sort of basically bringing it back to layman's terms and even having sort of examples that illustrate our point that's really not that really pushes scientists out of their comfort zone. I can tell I can tell you that. Um, But (laughs) it is, it is really important for us to do this, especially in this context, because otherwise the science goes nowhere. Our complete messaging is lost if we don't really get to the group that we need to reach, or if we don't get to the stakeholders. And analogies like the pool are wonderful because everyone can relate to it. Everyone gets a chuckle out of it. And you will remember it weeks afterwards, and that's the thing, it has longevity.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it reminds me of um, Brene Brown's uh, first, uh, the first uh, TED talk that she did, The Power of Vulnerability, where she starts talking about how you have to be able to measure this. (laughs) We can't just (laughs) tell stories. Um, But I think you're right, stories are the thing that people remember. Yep, exactly. so, you know, one of the questions I like to ask pretty much everybody I talk to is how do you think young people want the parents, the adults in their lives to show up for them? Because I think mm-hmm. when we look at things like use or misuse of any kind of substance, um, there are certain things that happen in a child's life or that don't happen in a child's life that can um, put them in a position where they're more susceptible or vulnerable to that. Mm-hmm. So um, what do you think it is that young people really crave or need from the adults in their lives?
1: In this particular context, yeah. in, this, in, the, in the vaping context? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, you know, for, I mean, obviously you need to have, show them support, you know, that, that you're there for them and trying to, you know, depending on if you have a nicotine addicted kid that you, you, you're basically gonna work through this together. Um, but at the same time, I think, the, you know, some of us in in the science and the public health field and the regulatory agencies, for sure, have failed them. Um, and in a way, I think, you know, um, we did not show up for them for the past three or four years, um, you know, where, you know, we saw the dangers, or certainly I saw the dangers. I've certainly been screaming loud and clear about it, but... Um, You know, could we have done something else and, you know, in terms of showing up for them, you know, what other regulations, what other support systems, what other limitations, uh, alerts, just sort of making them, you know, maybe getting to the kids earlier, like two, three years ago and telling them this is what the danger is, stop doing this. Um, You know, showing up for them really where I'm um, su- not just supporting them currently, but also telling them, hey, listen, part of this is my fault. Um, and I, I got to take responsibility for this. Um, and we need to figure it out together
0: how to get through those. Mm, I love that because it takes the shame and the guilt and all that yeah. stuff out of it for the child.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's not their fault. I mean, there are probably some, you know, addictive personalities or, but the reality is any 14, 15, 16 year old is going to engage in risk behavior. Um, And this was just something that was readily available. It was very, very cool. It was very hip. It had an instant gratification with nicotine where it, you know, that's a great chemical to you know for someone you know 15-year-old it right? a so sort of this head rush and increases concentration and things like that. So um you know it's it's not their fault and you know we need to work together to get all of us out of this.
0: Right. You know, you bring something up that I, I really wanted to make sure I asked you it, and that is what do we do if we are a parent and we have a child that is already hooked on on, mm. you, on vaping. Um, and I, and we you know we've talked a quite a bit about sharing with them the dangers and the harms. But what kind of concrete things are available out there for parents mm. in terms of treatment for those? Oh, that that's adults?
1: you know that's that's an excellent question. I'm not a cessation expert and or nicotine dependence expert. Um, believe in just a little side fact here. One of the leading pediatric nicotine dependence and addiction experts actually now works for Jewel, But you know I just had to throw that in there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, So, um, I know, I know it's, it's kind of ironic. Um, so there are some, um, tools that are available through, I think it's called tobacco free kids, uh, because we need to realize that all of those wonderful cessation tools we have developed for your pack-a-day smoker, COPD patient who is 60 or 65 years old, do not work in a 15-year-old. They're not going to call the 1-800-CRIT line. I don't remember the last time my kids used their iPhone actually to call someone. Right. <laughs> um, so, um, so there are now w- ways to do through Instagram, through Snapchat, through messaging. Uh, Tobacco-Free Kids has some of those. The American Academy for pedi- uh, Pediatrics has some of those tools as well they're really more geared to um, the sort of more tech savvy, teenage population, you know, videos, FaceTime, all of those things that kids do. And so they're using those in the context of cessation and um, helping kick the nicotine
0: dependence. Mm. That's great. So I will make sure that those kind of uh, notes are available to people who are listening right now um, to get more information about programs that might be more effective for young people. Yeah,
1: and there, there may be some local ones. I have worked here with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services um, and their tobacco prevention uh, group, um, and they're great. They have sort of additional things on top of everything that's, that's available nationwide. So there may be things just within Colorado uh, or even Boulder County that, that are available to, you know, to the local community.
0: Yeah, thank you. So, um, as we kind of wrap up our show here, what would you like to leave parents with today as it relates to vaping?
1: Oh, um, ask your kids what's going on. Um, if if it's not, you know, sometimes it's, they, they feel more comfortable talking about, you know, some other kid in school and they don't want to rat them out and that's, you don't want to want them to become a snitch. Um, but, you know, try to make them aware that this is, a, this is serious, um, this is really, really serious. This is not just, you know, something that will fade away. This can have significant long-term permanent health consequences. Talk to your kids, make them aware that this is, this is real, this is serious. Um, and if they fess up to having you know, done this, or vaping, or um, you know, are in a group that is potentially susceptible to doing that, try to get them help or get them educated, um, and and become involved. And you know, literally, again, make sure you understand what these devices are, what a jewel pod looks like. Hold it in your hands. Um, and just sort of become familiar with the terminology.
0: Mm, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we focus so much on education, because you don't even know what questions to ask or what to look for right. if you aren't aware of what the issue is. Exactly, exactly. And the the other
1: thing, I talk to a lot of healthcare providers and pediatricians as well, because obviously when you have a teenager, they go to their yearly checkup and the pediatrician has the sort of closed-door conversation, you know, with them about risk behavior and things like that. And make sure that your pediatricians ask those questions because sometimes mm-hmm. they get a more clear or honest answer or their school nurses get a more honest answer than, the, than, than you as a parent.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Use the resources in your environment, right? The people that are interacting Everyone. with your kids. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone. Oh, well, thank you so much for being here with us today um, and sharing, you know, your background, your experience, the research that you've seen, kind of where this is going. Um, before we let you go today, Dr. Jaspers, is there a way that people can reach out to you or somewhere where they can kind of stay up to date on um, the things that you're doing?
1: Um, I have, I'm, I'm at UNC in Chapel Hill, um, and I believe my information is available on the website. Um, I try to highlight, and the the UNC um, Health News tries to highlight things that I've done. Um, and there is um, there is the NPR podcast, the NPR um, interview that we just did the other day, which was great. So there's some some other sources
0: uh, that are available that I've done in the past. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We want to thank Radio 1190 for letting us use their space. If you like what you heard today and want to become a sponsor or make a donation, you can find us at penbv.org. That's P-E-N-B-V dot org. We hope today's conversation has added to your parenting well. Having a well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, and you've been listening to Parenting Well podcast. Until next time, happy parenting.